<laughs> Thank you all for being here. My name is uh, Phil Adams. I serve as uh, the pastor here at Park, Rogers Park. Um, I was just thinking a second ago down there, I was listening to a podcast or, or, or something where somebody was saying, and they weren't a follower of Christ, they weren't um, a believer, and they um, were saying, you know, they were thinking back to a time where more people went to church on a Sunday, and they were saying, you know, that, that at least people were taking a time out of their week to just think deeply about what it means to be human, what it means to be alive, who they are, why they exist, what it, what it means to live a life well and meaningful. Um, and so, so just grateful for um, us as a body that gather here every week in all the ways it's that we just already seen throughout our service of intentionality of thinking through how we raise a family, what we do with our resources, what does it mean to live a life well. So just glad that you're people that are here thinking on those things. Also excited to continue in the Gospel of Luke. So if you've got a Bible, please bring that out or put it up on your phone. We're going to be in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 5, verse 27. I'm going to read that in a moment. But um, I, man, I've just been really enjoying this series. I hope you guys too have been enjoying uh, the Gospel of Luke and just its, its, its richness and how we just get to center ourselves um, on, on stories of Christ and who He is and what He said and what He did and the life that He lived. We had a, a small group leader gathering a few weeks ago and one of the things we uh, talked about with some of the leaders that were there is that no matter how long you go in your journey with Christ that there is always more to learn, there's always more to discover, there's always more that is fascinating about who Jesus is. I'm grateful for this series as we, we delve in and investigate more of who Jesus is. Uh, one of the things that has struck me afresh as we started this series in Luke is that right from the very beginning, you'll have noticed this at the very beginning of Jesus' ministry, is that he, he moves outwards towards the outcasts. Have you, have you noticed that? Have you seen that? And the people that Jesus has met and, and encountered so much of Jesus's ministry from the very beginning was about inclusion, about opening a door to welcoming people in that may not feel welcomed in. Jesus did engage, we've seen in, in the synagogues, in the religious temples, speaking to those that were religiously and spiritually confident, those who felt that their inclusion as God's people was a given, something that they were entitled to. We've seen in chapter 2, when Jesus, we'd seen this in chapter 2, when Jesus went to the synagogue when he was just 12 years old. We've seen it in chapter 4, when Jesus went to the synagogue to announce his purpose in a synagogue in Nazareth. And that was at the beginning of Jesus kind of crystallizing his mission and purpose. Because if you remember, Jesus' announcement back in chapter 4 in that synagogue was that he had came to bring good news to the poor and the recovery of sight to the blind. And then every story, every story of personal transformation from then onwards that has occurred, it has occurred in the lives of those that are not religious insiders, but who are in some way religious outsiders, the, the kind of people that would maybe even come or maybe are in our service this morning and are wondering, what in the world is this? Are you guys like a choir practicing, singing? What, what, what are you here for? Why, what is this? Who is Luke? It's people who would ask us those very questions that Jesus is, is moving towards. In chapter 4, Jesus is rejected by the religious in his hometown. They, they try to throw him off a cliff. And he, he transitions then from standing, teaching in pulpits to sitting teaching in fishing boats. He, he sets 
free the demon-possessed. He calls fishers of fish to follow him. He, he cleanses a leper. He heals last week a paralytic. To re-quote Wendell Berry again, it seems Jesus came to carry religion out of the temples, into the fields and the sheep pastures, onto the roadsides and the banks of the rivers, into the houses of sinners and publicans, into the towns and the wilderness, towards the membership of all that is there. And if you're here a couple of weeks ago or three weeks ago, I think, when, when, when I quoted that quote last, you may be thinking, is today going to be the same sermon, just kind of a rehash of it? Well, it kind of, kind of is. Because Luke, when he's writing his gospel and he's writing the story of Jesus' life, he, he didn't rush to move on. He kind of circles around the same idea that when Jesus began his earthly ministry, from the outset, he, he crossed boundaries, leaving behind those that were comfortable in their own self-sufficiency, and he moved towards bringing healing to those that could undeniably recognize their own need and undeniably recognize their own deficiency. Do you know who, who, who you are this morning? Do you, do you know who you came here as this morning? Are you here as the self-sufficient? Are you here as the self-reliant? Do you pride yourself in being self-reliant? Or are you here this morning and you know you're here in need? Do, do you feel your need, your lack, your, your lostness this morning? In the opening chapters of Luke, Jesus, the holy, the perfect, the embodiment of righteousness and truth, the Son of God, the incarnation of God, is spending his days, his time, his waking hours with lepers and paralytics and the demon-possessed. But not only that, Jesus hasn't only been reaching out to touch and to heal and to restore a relationship with those that are outcasts, he's also along the way been rebuking the religious leaders who aren't. There, there, there was something about how the religious leaders perceived, perceived their status as the included that was distorting what should have been their treatment of others. Or to put it another way, how the religious leaders perceived their own right standing before God was resulting in a lack of connection, a lack of intimacy with those that were deemed outsiders. It was in fact their religiosity. It was their religiosity and their devotion to God that was getting in the way. It was what they thought that they were doing right that was in fact building a wall keeping those Jesus wanted in their lives, out of their lives. Think about that. That our devotion to forms of tradition and religion that we maybe believe are a necessary reflection of our commitment to God can actually get in the way of relationships that Christ wants us to have expressions of our faith that we maybe feel are non-negotiable can inadvertently hinder the meaningful relationships that Christ intends for us to cultivate. And yet, what may feel at times to be non-negotiable, an non-negotiable aspect of how we express our faith in the gospel, there is maybe more freedom than we know. Maybe, maybe today, for some of us, there is more freedom in Christ than we realize. 
a freedom that, that says it's okay to connect, to form intimacy with others over what makes you feel not okay. A freedom that says we can radically devote our lives to Christ and also relax in reflection of our failures and our mistakes. A freedom that says it's okay to follow Christ and be vulnerable as you do. A freedom that says it's your story of weakness and need and sickness and sin that God wants to redeem through honesty and intimacy to bring the healing power of the gospel into the lives of those that are around you. Let's read our passage. Let's read Luke chapter 5, verse 27 down to verse 32. And it reads like this. After this, he went out, that is Jesus, and he saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And leaving everything, he rose and he followed him. And Levi made him a great feast in his house, and there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at table with them. And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Let's pray. God, we are grateful for your word. We are grateful that it is a foundation. We're grateful that it reveals truth and reality to us. God, I pray, God, if there's anything in our lives that is a distraction right now, God, I pray that we'll be able to center our, 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 our focus on you. I pray, God, that we will have an earnest desire to hear from you this morning, speak into our lives, grow us in Christ-likeness, bind us together as a people here in Rogers Park for the sake of your glory in the world, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Our passage today, it opens uh, with an introduction to, to a new character that we haven't met in Luke's gospel, and his name is Levi, which is one of the names that this man goes by. Another name that he goes by is Matthew, who maybe is more commonly known. Matthew is in the Matthew wrote the book of the Bible named after Matthew. And we encounter Matthew or Levi today at the very beginning of his decision to follow Jesus. Verse 27 says, after this he went, that is Jesus, and he saw with his eyes a tax collector named Levi sitting at his tax booth. And knowing that Levi was a tax collector, it, it, it gives us a lot of insight into Levi's social status, which is key to understanding the passage. Because tax collectors in this time, they, they, they were famously shunned. Some of you might know this, particularly by their own people. Because tax collectors, they were employed by the Romans to collect taxes from their fellow Jews. They, they, they were seen as lesser, both by the Romans for not being Roman citizens. They didn't belong with the Roman oppressors. But they also had betrayed their own people by collecting taxes for Rome. And more than that, tax collectors, maybe kind of be due to being pushed to the fringes of society, not really belonging to anybody, they were deemed as sleazy, tax collectors were deemed as corrupt, they were known for lining their own pockets, taking from the people. According to one commentator I came across, tax collectors would have encountered a level of disdain, a level of contempt comparable to how our society today might consider a pimp or a drug dealer. Tax collectors they were societal pariahs, rejects, outcasts. 
just the kind of people that Jesus has been spending his time with. The possessed, the lepers, the paralytic, the pariah. And so Jesus is, is, is walking down the street. First he sees Levi. He sees him sitting at his tax booth, doing what tax collectors do. You probably had a ledger or some kind of book or scroll. There probably was a line of people there, kind of grumpy, having to go pay their taxes. And Levi is mid-tax collection when it says in verse 27 that Jesus says two words to him, follow me. Which is what Peter has already told Peter, or what Jesus has already told Peter and James and John, the fishermen back in verses 10, 11 to do, follow me. Jesus is, is gathering around him a following. But if we think about this, he, he isn't gathering a following of, of scholars and, and, and Ivy League graduates, the best and the brightest of society. His following so far in the Gospel of Luke is lepers and paralytics and a shun tax collector, a drug dealer, a pimp. In verse 28, speaking of Levi, in response to the call of Jesus, it says, and leaving everything, Levi rose and followed Jesus. And we know this is what happens when we choose to follow Jesus, isn't it? We, we don't just follow Jesus, we, we leave behind our previous life. We, we separate ourselves from who we are. In this passage, in verse 32, Jesus speaks about sinners being called to repentance. Repentance is turning away from sin and turning towards a new way of life in Christ, centered on Christ. Jesus becomes the, the spoke in the middle of the wheel of our lives, determining our identity and determining how we live, how we use our time and how we use our energy and our resources and our relationships. Jesus becomes like the, the lens, the filter through which we consider all of our decisions, our lives become a response to his call to follow him and to leave behind an old life and to become a new person in Christ with new affections and new dreams and new desires that Jesus may be honored and glorified and followed. And Levi is an exemplary example for us to imitate, isn't it? He, he left everything to follow Jesus. He handed his notice, he closed his leisure, he walked away from his book, finished, done. And so in verse 29, the next verse, after Levi's conversion, what would you expect to read? Maybe he joins a, a, a monastery? Maybe, well, it's a glimpse into Levi's new life? Maybe the, the unfolding of his new life of repentance in Christ? which is exactly what we, we get, but, but, but it surprises us. Look at verse 29. Levi left everything to follow Jesus, and then he made a big party, a great feast in his house, and there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at table with him. Here's the thing. Do, do you see what almost feels like a contradiction? I, I thought it said that he, he left everything. For one, he's still got a house and it's big enough to host a party in. But more than that, how, how can Levi leave everything to follow Jesus and throw a feast, including the very friends that typified the life that he has supposedly left? Other rejects, other outcasts, 
And what makes this even more startling is when we consider what feasting together signified at this point in history, because this wasn't just grabbing lunch at Subway, which would gladly do with any of you. <laughs> in the Middle Eastern first century culture, where this story was set, eating with people, particularly eating with people in your home, was rich in meaning, it meant something. Who, who you ate with, who you invited into your home had the potential to bring shame on you and your family or honor on you and your family. This was an honor and shame culture. Sim simply hosting, welcoming the wrong kind of people could detrimentally affect your reputation. Here's why. Because sharing meals meant more than just sharing food. Shared meals symbolized shared lives. Shared meals symbolized intimacy and connection and a mutual bond and friendship. And this mattered so much because in the first century Mediterranean world, people's identities, they were not primarily individually formed through an individual story that a person was living. That is more how we today construct our identities, something that we individually claim or build or determine for ourselves. Rather, in this culture, in the, in the Bible, in these verses, people's identities, they were formed, they were solidified based upon the group that an individual was identified with. There was le much less individualist, they were much less individualistic on their outlook than we are, and so it mattered who your family was. It, it mattered who your friends were and who your colleagues were, because they collectively were the key to understanding who you are, your identity, your place in the world. And so who, you're, who you were friends with, who you shared meals with, had the potential to alter your position in society, either lifting your status up or pushing your status down, lowering it. But there's more, bear with me, because remember, we touched on this a few weeks ago, that back in the ancient Mediterranean culture, there was also no separation between the spiritual and the physical aspects of life. Or you could say there was no separation between the spiritual and the societal aspects of life. And how this understanding of reality played out in the ancient Mediterranean world was through a commonly held narrative causing those of low status, the sick, the lame, the poor, the blind, the outcasts to be viewed as those outside the boundary of God's favor. And so if we hold those two ideas together, that who you identified with had the potential to either elevate or lower your status, and secondly, that your status was believed to be a reflection of your status before God. If we hold those two things together, that who you identified with had the potential to elevate or lower your societal status, and number two, that your societal status was believed to be a reflection of your status before God. If we hold those two ideas together and you realize, if, then we realize that if you, you cared anything about maintaining your right standing before God, if, if you cared anything about maintaining your inclusion within the people of God, then a pretty big priority in your life was going to be staying away from anyone or any group or any people or any affiliation that could lower your standing both in society but also consequently before God. And look at Levi. 
He's left everything. He's a picture of repentance. He's following Jesus. He's left his tax booth. And now look what Luke says he's done. He's thrown a feast and he is reclining at table with tax collectors and who knows who else. Reclining. Luke didn't have to use this word reclining. This isn't some kind of board meeting brunch to work out a business deal. This is home. This is relaxed. This is intimacy. This is shoulder to shoulder. This is Levi with his friends. And look what the Pharisees say when they peek their heads through the window. It says they grumbled at the disciples saying, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Before it called them others, and now the, the Pharisees are looking and saying, they're not others, they're sinners. Do, 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 do you realize what people are going to say? Do, do you realize what is going to become of you? Don't you understand that they will contaminate your good name and your reputation and your standing before God? You see, the Pharisees, they, they held to a strict law of codes to keep themselves clean. In fact, they considered the holiness of the temple as extending to their very own households. They considered the, the ritual purity that was required of priests serving in the temple as a requirement that extended to their own tables. The food they ate had to be ritually clean. Those they ate with had to be ritually clean. And there are different ways that we can look at this. We, 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 we could villainize them and we could call them legalists, seek, seeking to secure God's favor through the keeping of rules and regulations. We could say they, they were culprits in, in creating a religious social structure that maintained themselves at the top of the hierarchy. Or maybe we are judging too harshly for simply them trying to do the best that they could. We're working with only understanding that they had expressing their faith and their devotion to God in a manner that they considered good and right and befitting. Because the old, in the Old Testament temple law, cleanliness was required, which meant separation from that which was unclean. And God is holy and God is perfect and God is unblemished. And based on Old Testament temple law, paralytics and lepers and sinners weren't. Maybe, maybe their questioning or, or their grumbling, grumbling came from a genuine place of concern as what they considered a necessary reflection of their commitment to God. You know, we do need concrete, tangible forms of expressing our faith. The, the, the old has to actually become new. Followers of Christ have to be different. They have to be distinct. There has to be something off-center about us. We, we have to, to draw a line that says, I follow Jesus, which is going to have an impact on where we go and what we do and what we think and what we say yes to and what we say no to. There are parties that we're going to decline. There are personal commitments that we will make to the Lord that are an expression of following after Him and doing that and having a disciplined faith is not legalism. So please don't hear me today that we need to assimilate into the culture around us and be less distinct in our devotion to God and less radical in following Christ. That's not what I'm saying 
today at all. Interestingly, I've become increasingly challenged by, by the prayer lives recently, not of, of, of Christians, but some Muslims that I've been getting to know. I've been challenged that I don't stop whatever I'm doing, wherever I am, five times a day to pray. I've been challenged that I don't carry in my pocket a, a, a string of beads that I can use to help me stay focused in my prayers. I've been thinking about getting some. Christmas is coming. Prayer beads for Phil. So please don't, don't, don't hear me saying that we need to be less radical and less distinct in following Christ. That's not what I'm saying. And at times, the choices we make that reflect our distinction are very likely going to put a strain on the relationships that we have. But there is a caution in our passage today, isn't there? That we can be doing what we think is right when in fact we are building a wall keeping those Jesus wants in our lives, out of our lives. Our devotion to forms of tradition and religion that we believe are a necessary reflection of our commitment to God can actually get in the way of relationships that Christ wants us to have. Expressions of our faith that we maybe feel are non-negotiable can inadvertently hinder the meaningful relationships that Christ intends for us to cultivate that is the caution in our passage today. And if we continue giving the Pharisees the benefit of the doubt that they were working with, the only understanding that they had, we ask, well, what was lacking in their understanding? If Levi's genuine repentance and genuine following of Christ led him straight home to throw a party where he was at ease, affiliating, identifying himself with sinners, was there something Levi knew that the Pharisees didn't know? In verse 31, it seems that Jesus doesn't give the disciples a chance to answer the question that they were asked. He interjects. In verse 31, Jesus responds to the Pharisees' question as to why the disciples were eating with tax collectors and sinners, and this was Jesus' response. Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. So what is Jesus saying? Jesus is speaking again about the purpose for which he came. Back in the synagogue, he spoke about coming to bring good news to the poor and the recovery of sight to the blind. And we have seen Jesus do just that right from the beginning of Jesus' ministry. Jesus moved outwards to be with the outcasts. And every story of personal transformation that we have seen so far in the Gospel of Luke has been in the lives of those that are not religious insiders, but religious outsiders. This idea of two categories of people has been a theme so far in Luke's Gospel. The included and the excluded. The insider and the outsider. And again, in verse 30, 31, Jesus now speaks about two categories of people. This time he uses different terminology. Jesus refers to the first category of people as those who have no need of a physician, those who are well, those that are healthy, and those who are righteous. That's the first category. There are the religious insiders, the righteous, the included, the well, the Pharisees, those that are confident in their own self-rightness. 
But Jesus, being the provocative communicator that he is, revealing truth in such a way that sometimes he bypasses our logic and goes straight for our intuition, Jesus is saying here that this first category of people is an illusion, a delusion that does not line up with reality. That the first category, it, it, it doesn't actually exist. The Pharisees, for example, they had taken the Old Testament law that was intended to reveal their sickness and their sin by its unattainableness and fooled themselves into thinking they were actually keeping that which was unattainable and therefore they thought they were righteous before God when in fact they weren't. Even if we don't villainize them and sympathize with them, their genuine devotion to God was full of pride. They were full of turning a blind eye to aspects of their life. They were full of self-deception. The Bible says there is none righteous. It's an illusion. It's a delusion. There is no one that's not in need of Jesus as their physician. And this is where we find the second caution in our passage today. Not only can our devotion to forms of tradition and religion get in the way of relationships with those that Christ wants us to have a relationship, but also what we do out of a genuine devotion to God can over time desensitize us to our need of God's grace and start to sow seeds, delusional seeds, in our mind that we are in fact self-righteous, righteous in and of ourselves, that we are not like tax collectors and sinners, that we actually are in and of ourselves better than others, believing that we have actually gained the righteousness of our own. And a sure sign that this may have become true of us may well be if we are unable to affiliate ourselves with and recline with and relax with and identify with and be intimate with those we consider of lesser reputation. Those who have made mistakes. Those who haven't got it all together who at the end of the day are just like us in so many ways. And so what is the solution that would allow us to let go of things we may need to let go of so that we can be friends with those who Jesus wants us to be friends with? And what is the solution that would allow us to, without fear, throw a feast with those that don't know Christ or just different to us? What's the solution? For one, reminding ourselves that Jesus' ministry was one of inclusion. That he did not wait to be included, rather he created space of inclusion. That when Jesus was passing Levi's booth, Levi belonged to nobody. The Romans didn't want him, he wasn't a Roman citizen. The Jews didn't want him, he was a traitor. But Jesus came walking in and said, follow me, follow us. I want you in my following. 
Church, what in your life could be a space, an event, a party that you could be doing the most simplest thing and inviting and including a wider variety of people than you currently are? Levi's love for others was simply a reflection of Jesus' love for him. And an invitation to the party was simply a furtherance of the invitation that Jesus had given him. And so listen to this. There is incredible freedom found when we remind ourselves that our salvation has been secured not by our doing, but nothing more than Jesus' healing. When Jesus died on the cross, he died in our place so that neither our sin nor our false righteousness would define us. Levi knew what the Pharisees didn't, that our sin and our pride has been nailed to the cross. And we have been clothed in a righteousness that is not our own, and it is not an illusion. We have been clothed with the righteousness of Jesus. We have been healed of our sin when we place our trust in Christ. So that before God, we are clean and we are untarnished and we have a reputation and the status of the redeemed children of God. Our status before God cannot be elevated, church, any higher. We're his children. And nothing in heaven and nothing in earth can bring about a lowering of those who are in Christ. And when we realize that, that our identity now in Christ is neither based on what we do individually, nor based on a group in which we affiliate or which we befriend, when we realize that our identity is based solely on what Jesus has done to redeem us as his own, there is incredible freedom. We don't have to hide our sin. We don't have to hide our past. We don't have to leave anybody out. We don't have to hide our weaknesses. We don't have to hide that which makes us relatable to the people in our previous life. We don't have to build walls of religion to keep others out in an effort to keep ourselves in. We can tear down walls of religion, of performance, of vanity. We can tear it all down and move towards one another to listen and to learn and to empathize and understand the lives that we share together. Because the gospel gives us a freedom that says it's your story of weakness, it's your story of sin and sickness that God wants to redeem through honesty and intimacy to bring the healing power of the gospel to those that are around you. Let's do that, church. Let's pray. God, we thank you that you did not walk past us. God, you've seen us alone in our sin, and you stopped, and you've seen us and you included us in your family, and you said, follow me. God, I pray that we would exude that same heart of inclusion here within our church body, but also in our neighborhood, in our city, and the world, that we would see people, that we'd want to draw them in, that we wouldn't think somebody is going to tarnish our reputation or tarnish the identity that we're trying to build for ourselves. May we know that our identity is secure in Christ, that we are the children of God, and it is only secure because of a righteousness that is not our own, because of the righteousness of Christ given to us. May we build our identity around that, centered on that. May it free us from religion, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen.